Uh, welcome back, everybody, as we continue with session two of How to Study the Bible. And uh, last week, we looked at the word pardes, peshat, remez, drosh, and sod, four levels that you can study uh, the scriptures on to help you dig. And I gave you some homework last week. And the homework, the first piece of homework, is to take the story of Eliezer, who is Abraham's servant, the manager of his house, and he sent him back to Abraham's town, basically over in the land of Ur, to find a bride for his son Isaac. And I'm sure you know the story. Abraham was very wealthy, and uh, they loaded up all the camels. He took servants with him, made this long trek back, and he looks for a bride. And at the well, he prays, Lord, if uh, a lady who comes down, I ask her to give me a drink of water, and she volunteers to water all my camels, which is a huge chore. If she does that, I know she's the one you've designated for my master's son, Isaac. And sure enough, Rebecca comes down, and he asks for a drink of water. She gives it to him. She says, well, let me water your camels too. And happy ending, he takes her home. Uh, you know, a day or two later, and she and Isaac live happily ever after. So, Eliezer is a tupas, that's the Greek word, or a type, a symbol, a picture of the Holy Spirit. I asked you to look for all the ways you could find that Eliezer pictures the Holy Spirit. So what did you find? Let's hear what you came up with. We talked about a few before we got started tonight, and we'll start with Eliezer's name. Eliezer, I want to get my paper here, I've got a bunch written down. Uh, Eliezer's name means what? Oh, it's right here. Somebody shout it out. I know you're shy because there's a camera running. My God helps, yes. So we'll put that one down first. And we know that the Holy Spirit is called the Helper. So Eliezer equals my God helps. What else did you discover? Anything else? What was Eliezer's job? Find to find a bride. What's the Holy Spirit's job? To call a bride. Okay? Comes to call, to find a bride. Yes. And here's a, a tough question. It takes a while to think through, but I'll, I'll give you the answer. What was it about Rebecca that made her do what she did. And why did Eliezer set that standard for a bride? That she had to go over the top in welcoming him and being willing to water his camels. Answer, he was looking for someone who had the qualities of Abraham. Because if you talk to a rabbi or some, a Jew who's been studying the Torah, you ask him what was Abraham's finest quality, they'll say hospitality. Hospitality. And even when he was aching three days after his circumcision, he's in pain, 
he sees three men. He runs to them. Come into my tent. Sit or, or come here and, and sit under the tree. And I'm going to go. We'll make food for you. We'll bring some food to you and rest. And after you're rested up and you've eaten, then you go on your way. Hospitality earmarked everything Abraham did. And that earmarked Rebecca as well. So he wanted someone. He looked for someone who had the qualities of Abraham. Romans tells us that all of us who walk in the steps of Abraham are called sons of Abraham. We are called upon to exercise the faith Abraham had. God said, leave what's familiar, go to a place I'll show you. And he did. That's a story of every believer. If you believe God, he calls you into a new kind of life. You can't see what it's going to be like, but you trust him and you go. And, um, and Rebecca did that. She went with Eliezer back to this land she had never been to, said goodbye forever to her family, and goes into this new place. Those are the qualities God looks for in a bride for Messiah. What else did you find? Who sent Eliezer? Abraham sent. He's the father of the groom. Okay, so he's sent by the father. And I'll put father in caps, capitalize it, because it's a picture of God sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's on assignment. Eliezer's on assignment from the father. Did he force Rebecca to come with him? She had to come willingly. You can put that down. She had to come willingly. And I mentioned before that he went to the town of Nahor. And Nahor in Hebrew means piercer. Piercer. And Yeshua's hands and feet were pierced. His side was pierced. And uh, to send the Holy Spirit back to the place of piercing to find a bride for the one who is pierced, that's quite a picture. Okay? What did Eliezer give when he encountered Rebecca, what did he do? As soon as, she, as soon as she brought the water and he told her his mission and, and all that, he gave her something. What did he give her? Yes, a nose ring and bracelets. He gave her gifts. Does the Holy Spirit give gifts? Yes, they were adornments, yeah. But he also gave something else. What else does the Holy Spirit give? He gives gifts, and the Holy Spirit gives... Come on, this is an easy one. The kids would know this one. Let's see, what else does the Holy Spirit give us? There are the gifts of the Spirit, and there are the... Thank you, fruits of the Spirit. Later on, I think it's in verse 36, or uh, no, I'm sorry, 53... Eliezer gives the people fruit, gifts and fruit. All right? The, the word that's used there to translate fruit, all the English translations translate it as fruit, but the only other place that word is translated, it means excellence. But in the Song of Solomon, it's consistently translated as fruit. Three or four times it appears in Song of Solomon, know this love story, and it's always translated as fruit, excellent fruit. So he gives gifts, he gives fruit, um, did he walk into Laban's home? No, Laban invites him into the home, and then Eliezer goes in. 
And as with everything else spiritual, the spirit must be invited in. It also tells us in the first couple of verses of the chapter that Eliezer was in control of the entire household. He ran everything in the house. Abraham entrusted everything to the, the mashal, the oversight, the control of Eliezer. So uh, anyways, those are a few things. There are at least that many, maybe twice that many more, but you get the idea. And here's the thing I want to drive home with you. The rabbis say if the Bible only consisted of its stories, we could have written better stories. But the Bible just doesn't consist of the stories. Every story, and I believe each story is historically true, but each story is a picture. And a picture is worth a thousand words. And God could communicate who he is and what he's about in pictures much better than he can in just words. So we read the words of the scriptures and they tell us stories that we can see, we can imagine, we can walk in and become a part of. And these pictures tell us so much about God, about his program, about his heart. So if you really want to understand the work of the Holy Spirit one of the best places you can go is back to Genesis chapter 24 about Eliezer, and the Holy Spirit's not even mentioned. But the whole story's about the Holy Spirit. And if you look at the details of the story, you will see more and more and more and learn more about how God's Spirit operates. This is one of the reasons why Paul says all Scripture, and there was no New Testament when he wrote this, but all Scripture is God-breathed, it's God-inspired, and it's profitable for our teaching. It says doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. Okay? It's also profitable for our reproof, to point out the things that are wrong in our lives. And for correction, it'll fix the things in our lives. And then instruction in righteousness, how to live a righteous life. And the writers of the New Testament always depended upon us to go to the Torah and to the prophets and the writings to understand what's true, what our teaching should be, what's wrong with us, how to fix it, and how to be instructed in righteous living. But when you throw the Torah away, it's like you've thrown most of the textbook away. And so um, we need to learn to unlock these pictures. And all the great stories, Noah and the Ark, Adam and Eve, uh, Daniel and Gal uh, David and Goliath, uh, Di Daniel and the lion's den, these are all amazing stories that are filled with images of Messiah, images of us, images of how God works in our lives. Learn to unpack them. Learn to decode them. And once you begin and you're on the right track, they'll just open up to you and blossom in ways you could, you could never dream. Okay, the other part of your homework was to identify the well stories. Now, there are a lot of wells in the Bible, but I'm looking for stories where a man meets a woman at a well. All right? A man meets a woman at a well. Of course, the very first one is this one in Genesis 24. The first one is the story of Eliezer, sent by Abraham to find a bride for Isaac. And so Eliezer meets Rebekah. 
All right. What is the next well story we find in the Bible? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca's son, she had twins, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob comes back to the same well many years later, and he meets Rachel at that same well. Okay, now the third one can be a little tricky, but just go ahead and... What's another well story? Yes, go ahead. Okay, Verna, is that you? Who have... Oh, yes, Kathy. Exodus 2.15, Moses. Very good, yes, Moses. And Jochebed. It's actually Yachabed, but we'll put Jochebed here. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Jochebed's his mother. That would not be appropriate, would it? Okay, yes. Let's put Zipporah there. Thank you. I'm glad to see you all got here at 6 o'clock, right on time. <laughs> For people listening, that's an inside, inside joke. I'm, thank you, Kathy. Moses and Zipporah. Um, and then what's the fourth one? Yeshua. Yes. Yeshua. And we'll put a question mark. He met a woman at a well in Samaria. Okay? Now we're going to come back to these four stories in a moment. Because these four stories all need one another to tell a bigger story. And this is the thing I want us to begin to look at today. The last week we looked at Pardes, Peshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. And as you know, Drash has to do with looking for, for types, connections within the word, the same word used over and over, word patterns. And out of all the different kinds of Drash there are, there's one that overshadows all of them. And if you could only come to one session of the six sessions I plan to do, if you could only attend one, this is the one. This is the one that will transform the way you study the Bible. Because in Drash, there is a thing that we call the menorah principle. The menorah principle. I want you to think about this for a moment. The Bible spends more time talking about the tabernacle than any other topic in the scriptures. Half of the book of Exodus is taken up with the tabernacle. It describes all the details, and then as if that's not enough, it describes all the details a second time. When the Bible repeats itself, it's trying to be emphatic about something, saying you need to know this. And the tabernacle takes up so much space in the scriptures, and then the temple, of course, which is built on the same basic pattern. And I always say that the tabernacle is the picture pages of the Bible. Uh, you know, if you're reading a biography of somebody or reading a history book, it's all just print and print and print. Then you come to that little glossy section where it's got photographs. The tabernacle is that glossy section with the photographs. Because everything God wants to illustrate in his word, every bit of theology he wants to teach, every quality he wants to illustrate, anything he wants to enlighten us about, about his program for mankind, about salvation, about Messiah, about ourselves, about the body, soul, and spirit, 
I don't care what it is the scriptures want to teach, it's taught and illustrated in the tabernacle if we know how to see it. But I've not found one piece of theology anywhere in the scriptures where I can't go back to the tabernacle and there it is illustrated. The tabernacle is absolutely ingenious. Every detail about it. But we don't spend enough time with it. We don't ponder it and think about it enough to really let it find a home in our hearts and in our minds. But it will transform the way you see the Bible. Now, there was one light source one man-made light source in the tabernacle, and that was the menorah. Because the menorah is God's pattern for giving light. We know that you know, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That means everything God teaches through the Torah, through the New Testament, the prophets, whatever, it's always going to be on this pattern of the menorah. In other words, there's always going to be a left side that balances out the right side. But there's going to be a central theme. I don't care what detail it is, what story it is, what principle it is. You must always find the balancing story, the balancing principle. And one that comes to mind, I've shared it many times, you've probably heard me. I was in conversation with a uh, retired pastor. We've got to be dear friends. And um, we were talking about salvation, and he, he says, Grant, it just really bothers me that you know that so few people ever, ever find God, ever get saved. And he says, because it says right there in the Sermon on the Mount, for straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. He says, that just troubles me so much. And I had talked to my friend about the menorah many times. I said, well, that's one side of the menorah. Now, let's, what's the other side? And the other side of the menorah is where Yeshua says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. There's the other balancing truth. So how many people really look for life and find it? Just a few. But how many does Yeshua find? Because he comes to seek. He leaves the 99 to seek each one that strays. He's very successful. All right? But see, if you just cling to the one and you forget the other, then your menorah's out of balance. And a lot of churches and a lot of individuals have menorahs that look like this. And they're always tipping over. And so they have to strain and struggle to hold up their truth, to hold up their theology. And they exert all their energy, just worn out, trying to support and, and to prove and cling to their faith. And it's not that what they're believing is wrong. It's just that it's not enough. Because there's more to the truth than what they see. And once they find the other side of the issue that is also true, ah, the menorah stands up all on its own. It's all balanced and you can rest. So they, we just have to really learn to seek out those things that were missing, those things in the Torah and in the, uh, throughout the scriptures that were missing. So if you find a particular theology that troubles you, find the balance to it. Not a compromise, a balance. Because there's, truth always has a left and a right. And um, so whenever God gives the light of truth through his word, it follows this pattern. Now some of you think, okay, I kind of get what you're saying but can you illustrate it for me? 
I'll do my best. Let's take our four well stories. Now, I don't have room to write the names of the individuals here, so I'm going to use their initials. So the first well story, we'll go ahead and number these, one, two, three, four. The first well story is about Eliezer and Rebecca, correct? All right, can you remember E plus R is, is Eliezer looking for a bride for his master's son, Isaac. The next one is Jacob and Rachel. The third one is Moses, and not Jochebed, but Zipporah. Okay? And then the fourth one, we have Yeshua meeting the nameless woman at the well. What a great story that is. Have you, have you all watched The Chosen? Isn't that your, the, your favorite scene in the last episode of season one where Yeshua meets the woman at the well? I've played that scene over and over. I can't tell you how many times. And every time, tears well up because I think that it pictures his love so much. And he reveals himself as Messiah to this woman first. I came here to let you know, to tell you that you're the first to know who I am. I'm the Messiah who's talking to you. What amazing, amazing scene. Okay, so let's put these in a menorah pattern. Let's start with the middle two. Jacob meeting Rachel and Moses meeting Zipporah. Why was Jacob at the well? Why was he there? Why wasn't he home? Why did he leave home? What's the dynamic? To run away. He was an escapee. His brother Esau says, I'm going to kill you the moment dad's dead. I'm going to come and get you and kill you dead. So he goes away. He runs away. Why was Moses at the well? He's running away. We see that both of these men meet their brides because they're escapees. They are fleeing. All right? So I'll just put fleeing here. They're fleeing from death. And in their flight, they each meet their future bride. Now, let's go to number one and number four. Eliezer and Yeshua, were they running away? They weren't fleeing from anything. What were they doing? Eliezer went to, to Laban's area because he was searching. Why did Yeshua go to that well in Samaria? He was searching. He had an, he knew, he says, I must needs go through Samaria. That's how how the King James puts it. I have to go there because there's someone I have to meet. So with these two, they're seeking. They're not running away. And think of another detail. What did Eliezer, his first words to Rebecca, what were his first words? Give me something to drink. What were Yeshua's first words to the one with the well? Would you give me something to drink? But now here's where the two stories take complete opposites. Rebecca gives him something to drink. But the woman with the well, if she did, it's not recorded. But she, she, uh, uh, Rebecca offers to water all the camels as well. But with the woman with the well, Yeshua says, if you know who was asking for a drink, he would give you living water. In other words, I have something for you. 
that goes beyond anything you could ever dream. See how it's working? All right? And we're not quite done yet. So Jacob and Moses, who are fleeing for their lives, who are they a picture of? They're a picture, in this story, these stories, they're a picture of us. We've got death on our heels. We've lost everything. We've come to the end of ourselves. Jacob had nothing. Moses had nothing. Jacob had everything he needed at home. Moses was a prince of Egypt. And now here they have nothing. And they're fleeing for their lives. It's like a person who's come to the end of themselves. And what a great time to, to meet the person you need to meet. And so these two, these two here are a picture of us. But these outer two here, they're a picture of how God works with us. So we're trying to avoid death, and God is seeking us. But it doesn't end there, because there's a part missing from our menorah, isn't there? We don't have a menorah yet. What do we need for a menorah? We need to have something that supports the menorah. We have to have some central stalk here that holds the whole thing up. So what is that central stalk? Well, in the book of Genesis, you know, you've got the creation and the flood and all of that. Then you have everything races to get to Abraham. Then the, the narrative slows way down. It's like the scriptures were in a hurry to get us to Abraham. And once we get to Abraham, it's like, okay, everything before this was introduction. Now God says, I want you to focus. And we have the story of Abraham. Then we have a very short narrative about Isaac. And then we have a long story of Jacob. All right? Then when you go to the book of Exodus, it just starts right off with Moses. Who is the main character in Genesis and Exodus comes between the story of Jacob and the story of Moses? So here we've got Jacob, here we've got Moses, but there's a massive character. A main character comes in between these two. Joseph. Who's Joseph a picture of? There is no individual in the scriptures who pictures Yeshua more completely, more thoroughly than Joseph. We're going through Joseph now in, our, in the Torah portions, and, and next Shabbat brings the story of Joseph to a close, the last portion of Genesis. But I've, I've found, I think, around 60 or 70 parallels between Joseph and, um, and Yeshua. It's un unbelievable. They're both hated by their brothers. They're both sold for silver. They both went among the Gentiles. They both took a Gentile bride, right? She was taking a Gentile bride, but it's grafted into Israel, but still mostly Gentiles. And um, during a period of seven years of tribulation, seven years of famine in Joseph's case, seven years of tribulation in Yeshua's case, they reveal themselves to their brothers. I mean, it's, it's, and there's so many more things, so, so, so much more. Um, but you can begin to see how these components connect and they build a bigger picture. Right? Any questions so far? So I'm just moving right along. Any questions? Any comments? Any other insights you want to share? Yes, Rosella.
Um, because the thing that holds these stories together would be Joseph, because that falls in between them chronologically. But Joseph's always a picture of Yeshua. In fact, on most menorah patterns, you're going to find that middle stalk always points to Yeshua. Not always, but almost always. But it's like whatever is in the middle, we have to always discover what's the stalk, because that's what everything is pointing to, and that is what is supporting everything. And uh, it becomes the focal point. In fact, when you read in, the, uh, in Exodus, in the Torah, about the construction of the menorah, it talks about how the flames are all supposed to point towards the middle. The wicks would all point towards the middle stalk. And we find that in our stories, and as we continue to go through and build menorahs, it'll always point to some central truth. And, that's, and we have to do our, our homework. We have to study and think and meditate on these sometimes before we see what that central truth is. But, oh, it's so worth doing. Yeah, it's really rewarding. Um, let's take um, a few other things. I mean, these menorah patterns you find everywhere, just absolutely everywhere. And let's take the six days of creation. So on the left, put days one, two, and three. And I know this doesn't look much like a menorah, but you'll see that things on one side connect with things on the other. So quickly, what did God make on day one? Let me help you out by just writing it down. <laughs> okay, light and darkness. Uh, by the way, nowhere in the Bible does it say God created the light. God is light. He doesn't have to create it. I mean, this just is. That's why Isaiah says, you form, or God says, I form the light and I create the darkness. Because darkness is something that didn't exist before. We had to form the light, reduce it and shape it and bring it down to a level to where we weren't blinded by it. So he forms the light, creates a darkness. But light and darkness day one. On day two, what do we find out? He makes the firmament to separate between the waters above and the waters below. Day three. What does he do on day three? Okay, the dry land appears. And so, and so we also have seas. So when the water recedes, the dry land appears. So dry land and seas. What we see here is separation. All through the first three days, we see God separating things. He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the waters above from waters below. And he, he, he pulled the waters back so the dry land could appear. So he's separating things. And order always comes to our lives, first of all, by God separating. Separating out the things that don't belong from the things that do. Now, what does he make on day four? He makes the sun and the moon, and the stars, of course. And what's the sun for? To rule the day, and the moon to rule the night. He made the light and darkness on day one, but on day four, he makes the vessels for the light. On day five, he made the fish for the waters below, and he made the birds to fly above the firmament, the waters above, so to speak. Okay? You see how two and four, I'm sorry, two and five correlate? On day six, he made the animals and man. Because they live on the dry land. And they rule over the animals 
and the fish in the seas. Man rules over the animals and the fish. But you see how the things on the left line up with the things on the right? It's a menorah pattern again. There's a correspondence. But what's the central stalk? Well, we have one day left, the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, which is an eternal day. It's a day that was actually existed before God did his work of creation. And it's a day that, it's the only day of the seven where it didn't say there is uh, evening and morning, day seven. It, doesn't, it didn't come to an end. The Sabbath never ends. In this world, it ends, you know, on Shabbat evening, Sunday, Saturday evening. But, but uh, on Sabbath, what we do is we step out of this world and we get to enjoy a little fragrance of the world to come. We get to experience a little bit of something that's outside of time and outside of space if we know how to engage the Sabbath. That's why the Sabbath is so important. Let's take another list and do a similar thing. We have the Ten Commandments. One, two, three, four, five on the left, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on the right. So very quickly, the first commandment is I am Adonai, which is not actually a commandment. Anoki Adonai, I am Adonai your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, now the house of slavery. That is the commandment. You see, the, the Bible doesn't actually call the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments. It calls them the Esther Devarim, the Ten Words. And so the first word is not a commandment, it's a statement. And if you have faith in that statement, okay, well, let's move on and let's keep the commandments that I, your God, have provided you. The second commandment is, I'll just put an X here, no idolatry. Third commandment is don't take God's name in vain. Fourth commandment is the Sabbath. The fifth commandment, honor parents. All right. Now let's look at the other five, the five that were on the second tablet. These all are X's. These are all thou shalt nots. So number six is you shall not murder. So let's just stop there. How does that connect with the first commandment, I am Adonai your God? Well, whose image are each of you made in? God's image. When you murder someone, you are destroying a picture of God himself. He says, I am God. I've made you in my image. You're all little pictures of me. Flawed pictures, some more flawed than others. But when you murder, you're destroying a picture of God, and he takes that very seriously. Very seriously. This is why we be careful how we treat one another. Because each of you is a, a little walking, talking picture of God. And then that reminds me, so am I. I need to watch how I behave. If I'm in God's image, I need to bear his image better than I have. Number seven is no adultery. What is idolatry, always called in Scripture? Spiritual adultery. Because you're taking the love and devotion 
and the covenant you've made with God, and you're breaking that covenant to give your love and affection to something that is not God, to a thing. And he calls that spiritual adultery. Over and over and over again. And this is why in the Torah it says, do not explore after your heart and after your eyes, after which you commit, and then the word there is zona, which is the word for prostitute. When you follow your feelings and emotions here, you're going to do the wrong thing. When you follow what your eyes see, you're going to do the wrong thing. So what are we supposed to follow? We're supposed to follow his word. I can't trust my eyes. I can't trust my heart. The laws lead me wrong. And I'll perform the act of a zona. So I need to follow him, follow his word. Number eight, no theft. What does that have to do with taking God's name in vain? Every time someone takes God's name in vain, they're stealing his glory. It's an act of theft. And that's why I'm careful to not even say, oh my God, that bothers me. Now, people may not know who my God is, but if people do know what my God is, and I'm just flippantly saying that, it's robbing him of his glory. And his glory is something I never want to take. I never want to diminish it in any way if I can. The Sabbath is number four, but over here we have false witness. Do not bear false witness. You see, the Sabbath is our testimony to the world that we are in covenant with God. If we are truly believers and we've truly committed ourselves to the Lord, God has given us a way to show the world that we're out of step with the world, to show the culture we are not following the culture. And when you keep the Sabbath, you are out of step with everything. <laughs> I mean, people say, why don't you do anything on Saturdays? Why, it's, what's wrong? Every, Saturday's the fun day. Why, you, why do you spend it resting and going to, to, to Bible study and praying? Because I don't follow the culture of the world. The Sabbath is our wedding ring. And uh, when God made a covenant with his people on Mount Sinai, that was a wedding ceremony. And the Sabbath is the wedding ring. Now, keeping the Sabbath doesn't put you in covenant with God. Any more than putting a ring on your finger doesn't make you married. But if you are married, this is a proper way to let people know. And if you're truly in covenant with God, taking one day a week, the Sabbath, and setting it apart and keeping it holy will put you completely out of step with the world. And people are going to notice. Uh, I've, I think I've shared this story before. I'll speed this up. But uh, I go to this little Bible study on Friday morning, 6.30 in the morning. And uh, just at the little church just up the street, about 10 or 12 old guys like me. And they're great. They're, they're good friends. And they know I'm a little weird because I'm this messianic thing. Um, but we were going through the book of Exodus, and we came to chapter 20, where there are the Ten Commandments. And so we're discussing, and I thought I'd play a little game. I said, if you were the devil, and right away, they're put, oh, okay, if you were the devil, and you could just remove one of the Ten Commandments to where there's just nine commandments now, you could just do away with it, take it out of the Bible, which one would you take out? And so they started thinking, oh, I don't know, uh, idolatry or adultery or murder. And they kept guessing all these. And finally they said, which one would you, would you take if you were the devil? I said, well, which one has he taken out? And they said, the Sabbath? I said, exactly. 
And I said, why? Why is the Sabbath so important? I said, think about it. If you take one-seventh of your life, that's one 24-hour period each week, one day a week, one-seventh of your life, and you step away from the world and you devote that seventh of your life to keeping that day holy, remembering who God is, spend it in time with your wife, with your family, in prayer, and study, and fellowship, and making that day a delight between you, your family, your friends, and God. And you say, no to the world, I'm getting off right now, I'll be, get back on 24 hours and I have to go back to work. I said, if you devote one-seventh of your life completely following God, aren't the other nine going to be real easy to keep? And I said, yeah. Okay? You understand why the Sabbath, it seems not so important, but it's so important. Here, let's look at the big menorah pattern. Let's take the Bible itself. How does that sound? The Bible itself. The Bible begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth, like we just saw. How does it end? With the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I had to put this menorah up on its side because it wouldn't fit on the page. Right after the heavens and earth are created, Adam and Eve, we see Satan introduced. What happens right before the new heavens and new earth are created? Satan is destroyed. Not long after Satan's introduced, early in the book of Genesis, we see the destruction of the world through a flood because this is the fruit of following this wicked individual's influence. What happens before Satan is destroyed? We see the world destroyed by fire. And then after destruction by flood, we see this world dictator come up, Nimrod, with this basic one world government, one language at the Tower of Babel. And we also read about Revelation about Babylon, which gets its name from that, and Antichrist, the last world dictator. Right after the story of Nimrod, Abraham is introduced at a walk of faith. And right before Babylon, we see the, what we call the church age, the kahal is the proper word, and the walk of faith there of people who are the children of Abraham. You know, in Judaism, if a Gentile converts to Judaism, he gets a new name, a Hebrew name, whatever it might be, but it's always so-and-so, Ben Abraham, son of Abraham. Why? Because just like Abraham, who was a Gentile, you left that to follow God in his ways. So this is why Paul says, if you've decided to walk in the steps of Abraham, you're a Ben Abraham, you're a son of Abraham. You don't have to go through a conversion process in a synagogue. You become one who walks in his faith, you're a son of Abraham. After we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, we have... Finally, the the covenant that's made with all the people, the Torah at Sinai. And and that's at Shavuot, by the way, Pentecost. But what we see at the beginning of this this time, what we call the church age, we see another Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. After the Torah and the people finally get up to the Jordan River, he sends in 12 spies. So we see Yeshua sending 12 apostles. Anyways, I'm skipping a lot of ones that you could find in between here. But what is the center stalk? Yeshua. Yeshua's life and his death on the cross. And this is a very condensed because the whole Bible is a menorah. And the beginning and the end line up 
right in, past the beginning and right before the end, things line up. You keep working back and finally you find Yeshua right in the middle. Isn't that amazing or what? Please, somebody nod your head. Okay, all right. Here's some other examples that you can play around with just for practice. Um, and, and let's see if you can come up with them here. In Matthew 4, 18 to 22, how about turning there right now? Matthew 4, 18 to 22. Because these menorah patterns can be big, like including the entire Bible, they can be tiny, taking one little small event in Scripture. So let's take this small event, Matthew 4, 18 to 22. I remember years ago, when I discovered this connection you're about to see, that's what really lit a fire under me about menorahs. So I saw this. I thought, this is in no way coincidental. No way. And I started looking for others, and pretty soon it, it led me onto this place where <laughs> I had to put this on here. I see menorahs everywhere, you know. That movie's old. Maybe you haven't seen it. But uh, anyhow. So he calls four disciples. Let's read the account, starting in verse 18. Now, as Yeshua was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. He said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, there's a second half to the story. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their what? Their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right, we all know the story. Now turn over to chapter 8. And instead of 4, 18 to 22, we're going to look at 8, 18 to 22. And here's what it says. Now, when Yeshua saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. So they're at the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And does Yeshua say, All right, come on aboard. There's room for everybody. He doesn't. He discourages him. Yeshua said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's the second part of the story. Another of the disciples said to him, Master, permit me first to go and bury my what? My father. But Yeshua said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their dead. Now you see the similarities? Both accounts contain two stories. The first one he's calling two disciples, and then he calls another two, and they leave their father to follow him. But in this story, people are asking to follow him. And he kind of says, Not so much. And then the second account, the guy is saying, just, just wait till I bury my father. A father is involved again. But Yeshua is like, let the dead bury the dead. Are you going to follow me or not? So you see him calling, but then over here, kind of warning, discouraging, and, and counseling, like, sure, this is for you. Are you really ready? And each account has two parts, and the second part of each account involves a father. A living father that they're willing to leave, and a dying father they're not willing to leave. 
you've got a menorah pattern. So the question is, what's going on? Why is he calling one and discouraging the other? Well, something happens between chapter 4 and chapter 8. Yeshua gets really popular, <laughs> and people are wanting to, to, to kind of clam on. Oh, he's the, he's the man. And now he's like, he's the guy to follow. And now Yeshua's like, all right, not so much. When I was a nobody and I called people and they followed me, that meant something. Now that I'm a somebody and you're wanting to follow me, I need to kind of warn you off. There's a powerful lesson here. But you don't get that big lesson until you take the two stories and then put them side by side. You see how it works? So I'll let you fill in the blank there uh, yourself. Oh, I love this one. In Matthew 8, we don't even have to look it up, but it's right there in the next verse. Um, Matthew 8, verse 23. And uh, he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Yeshua himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Master, we're perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? All right, what's the matching story? What's the matching story? A boat? Yes, a boat, a storm, somebody asleep in the boat, and then a miraculous calming of the storm. Jonah. You're supposed to put the two stories together. There are so many similarities that God's like saying, please, take these two stories and put them together. And you know, there are so many things we can say. I've done teachings on this, but there's so, much, so many things we can say, but this is the bottom line for me. If you're going through a real storm in your life, and we all have, we each have a Jonah asleep, and we each have a Yeshua asleep on our boat. Be careful which one you throw overboard. Right? Because the solution to your problem is to throw the Jonah overboard and wake up and pray to the other. But too many times, we'll throw Yeshua overboard and then continue, wake up Jonathan, continue in our rebellion. And we wonder why things stay so stormy. But there are plenty of other parallels. But you, you see all the parallels. Storm, boat, somebody asleep. The person asleep is the solution to the problem and a miracle. I mean, there's so many parallels. How do we even miss it? All right? Um, Here's a biggie. The Sermon on the Mount. The Son of God goes up on a mountain, or whoops, or he's at the bottom talking to the people who are up on the mountain. We're not sure which. But uh, I always picture him at the bottom because it would make more of a natural amphitheater for him to talk to the people up here, but who knows. Anyways, Sermon on the Mount. What's the other great mountain where God speaks. What? Sinai, of course. Mount Sinai. Now, we're not going to be able to write things in here, so we're going to use symbols. So here, uh, we're going to put this, uh, things on the blue line are moving forward, then on the left, we're going to move backward. So here's, here's the Sermon on the Mount. All right, right here, Sermon on the Mount. 
So for convenience, let's picture Yeshua at the top of the mountain. He's talking to this group of people, just a few thousand. And uh, he, he shares these insights with them, the internals of what the Torah is, the spirit of the Torah is what he's sharing with them. So let's go back in time and let's go to Mount Sinai. Were the people afraid at Mount Sinai when God spoke? They were terrified. They said, Moses, we, if he keeps talking to us, we're going to die. You go up there and talk to him, right? They were terrified. Was anybody terrified when Yeshua spoke? No, it was just, it was a man's voice. It was gentle. It was about love and forgiveness. It was about joy and blessing. It's warnings and encouragement. And uh, this wonderful truth, it was just like drinking honey. But when God spoke about Sinai, it was terrifying. We have to understand, God's speaking in both cases. But with Sinai, he's given the externals. And somewhere in the mountain, he's given the internals of the same message. So let's go back a little bit. What had happened before they got to Mount Sinai? Where had they just left? 49 days earlier, they had left Egypt on Passover. The very first Passover. And what happened sometime after the Sermon on the Mount? There was another Passover and another mighty deliverance. At the first Passover in Exodus, they took a lamb, slaughtered it, Put the blood on their doors. God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And the next morning, they were passed from death to life, from slavery to freedom. Yeshua dies on the day of Passover. And through his body and blood, we're passed from death to life and from slavery to freedom. Not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin. But what happened before Passover, back in Exodus? What, were, what was their state of being? How did they get to Egypt? They were slaves in Egypt. How did they get there? Who led them to Egypt? Joseph did. So this represents a Jewish people, and they go to Egypt. And they go to Egypt during a seven-year famine. There's another Joseph, Mashiach ben Yosef, (laughs) who is also going to do something amazing in this world during a seven-year period. You know, we should quit dreading the tribulation. In fact, as believers, we should never dread anything. God's our God. What's there to dread? And if he ordains for seven-year tribulation come, and he ordains that we t- he's, we're taken out beforehand, that's great. If he ordains we stay through it, that's great. Whatever he chooses is perfect. But we shouldn't be dreading the tribulation because it's going to be an incredible time of testifying to people when people repent and come to the Lord because I think the veil between heaven and earth is going to be thinned out so much and dark and light are going to be so, come so clear the difference between the two. 
that uh, it's going to be a time that exposes hearts everywhere. And people are going to come to God, are going to come to him in droves. So there's a time when, uh, during a, a coming seven-year tribulation, that Messiah is going to do something amazing. But where were they before they went to Egypt? They were at home in the land. So I'll draw a little house here. They were at home in the land. And after the seven years of tribulation, what happens? We'll be at home in the land once again. Right? At home in the land. His kingdom will come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we go chronologically through history, we still see a menorah. It's pretty amazing. And what is right in here? The birth of Messiah, the coming of Messiah to earth. Now, you can jot these down. I don't have these in your notes, but here's some you can do for practice, but then I'm going to give you a real assignment. Is it actually 7.30? Is that the time? We got 30. Oh, we got 30 minutes. Oh, okay. We'll just do some of these here. Let's talk through them. I've done this with the Beth the Coon people who have, who have heard this. So if you've heard me teach on this, I want you to give other people a chance to think and see if they figure it out. Maybe you all know this. But um, there are two red creatures in the Bible. I'm not talking about one of the horses of the apocalypse. Yeah, there was a red one there, but he's a, a minor player. But there are two major red creatures in the Bible. Who can name one of the major red creatures where they're given quite a bit of space? What is one? What? Very good. The red heifer. Numbers chapter 19. The red heifer. What does the red heifer do? Its ashes do what? They cleanse from impurity. Impurity caused by death, by touching a dead body or whatever. Sprinkled with the ashes, the red heifer, you're pure. Now, what's the other red beast? You have to go to the other end of the Bible to find that one. I gave you a hint. It's a red beast. It's in Revelation. Chapter 17. You see the great harlot riding and coming in on a red beast. Now, the red heifer had to be a heifer that had never been ridden, never had a yoke on it. Here she's riding this horrible, ugly red beast and everything she touches, does it become pure? Comes completely impure. These two could not be more opposite. There's nothing threatening by, about a cow. But this thing she's riding looks like something out of a, a horror movie. And everything she touches, it's death. It's impurity. It's an abomination. And everything about her is something God hates. And yet here we have this red cow that can purify from abomination, from uncleanness and death. All right? So you can study those two. Put them side by side. Take a look. And when you look at these two, you get a better picture of who God is. All right? Because you have two halves of the menorah now, side by side. Um, Paul often talks about the first Adam and the last Adam. What's he doing? He's building a menorah. Who's the first Adam? That's the Adam in Genesis. Who's the last Adam? Yeshua. 
And so you can read about these uh, in Romans 5. He gives a lot of space there in Romans 5, the last part of the chapter. And then over in 1 Corinthians 15, the last half of the chapter, he compares Adam and Yeshua. And this is a very important concept. Because if someone asks you, what was the purpose for Yeshua's coming? There are a lot of good answers you can give. He came to uh, save us from our sin, and that's true. When he was born, uh, the angel said, you shall name his name Yeshua, for he shall yeshea them from their sins. He'll save them from their sins. His name means salvation. Um, You could say that he came to deliver us from death, the consequences of sin. That's true. But there's one perfect answer. And there's one answer that encapsulates it all. And that is to correct all the damage done by Adam's decision to disobey God. To correct every facet and every bit of fallout from Adam's sin. Yeshua came to correct all of it. All of it. Completely. Totally. And that's what Romans chapter 5 is about. He talks about how sin came through Adam. But that's nothing compared to what comes through Yeshua, the last Adam who starts something brand new. And all the damage done here is completely corrected over here for the whole world. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful uh, thing Paul goes through comparing these two. Because all the problems in the world were caused by a decision and an act Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And Yeshua performs this one act of self-sacrifice on the cross, and it undoes everything, undoes all the damage Adam ever did. It's an amazing thing. Included in that, you know, Hebrews says he came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, the works of the devil came into the world because of Adam's decision. He had to get past Adam. He had to get Adam to make a wrong decision before the enemy could come in. And so through Yeshua, all the damage Satan has ever done, it's all undone. Every bit of it. Every murder victim is resurrected. Every rape victim is made pure again. Every broken relationship is restored. Tell you what. Um, We have an incredible future ahead of us. It's amazing. So, stretch your faith. There's good things coming. Oh, here's a good one. Here's something that uh, Beth Takoon people are invited to participate in because you don't know this one. I haven't talked about this. There are two times where Yeshua hung out somewhere, it says specifically for two days, when he should have been moving on, but he stayed for two days. This happens twice. Can you identify either of these occasions? Yes. Yes, this is very interesting. Um, No, he was working among the Jewish people. And then he says, I got to go to these Gentiles, to Samaria. And he meets the woman at the well. And um, he was going to go on, but they convinced him to stay for two days. And he stayed with them for two days. And then he went on back to the Jewish people. And, and spent the rest of the time ministering to them. When you see two days in the scriptures, that phrase two days, it's a picture of the 2,000 years we're in right now. We're the woman at the well. 
And Yeshua has left his program with the Jews for a moment to spend time with us. But then he's going to go back and, and complete his ministry to them. All right, so two days. What's the other two days? Can you think what it is? Yes, very good. Yeah, uh, he gets word that Lazarus is sick, and he just hangs out for two more days, and Lazarus dies. Those two days also mean the same thing. So in the first story, he's talking about the two days and how it impacts us as Gentiles. The other story is about the Jews and the two days. So take those two stories. One is Gentile, the other is a Jewish story. You put them side by side, you see Messiah's program among the Gentiles and among the Jews. All right? It's no coincidence. How about um, twice Yeshua's feet get anointed? And I actually talked about this in the teaching yesterday morning, but they're twice. So anybody, just uh, what's one of the times he gets his feet anointed? Just go ahead. Anybody? Yes. What was the woman's name? She's not named. Where did it take place? Inside a Pharisee's house. And Yeshua is reclining at the table. This nameless woman comes up and is weeping and, and washes feet with her tears and using her hair to dry. All right? This sinful woman. Now, what's the other occasion? So a woman comes and anoints his feet. Roselle, I can see it written over your face. Go ahead. You're going, to, you're going to burst if you don't say it. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. It's the same kind of scenario. This time it's in Lazarus' house. She's Lazarus' sister. And she's a righteous woman. And she comes up behind him and um, breaks this box, this expensive box of this ointment comes out. And you can smell it all through the house. She puts on his feet, uses her hair to dry his feet. Now, in both stories, somebody complains about this. Go back to the Pharisee's house. Somebody complains about this. What, what was the complaint? Don't you know who that woman is? If you were a prophet, you wouldn't let her touch you. Right? And then the other one, somebody complains. When Mary anoints his feet with this expensive ointment, who complains? Judas does. You know how much we could have sold that for? We could have given it to the poor. And it's just wasted here. Now, look at Yeshua's replies to both. And go through those stories again. Uh, by the way, the references for those two stories are Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, and the other story is Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13. Well, you're starting to get the idea here that menorahs are everywhere for us to discover. I think most of the time we don't discover them because we're not looking for them. But God's light is always given according to the motif of a menorah. Always. No exceptions. And every story you can find in the scriptures, every event, you're always going to find that, that, that other event that's the other half of the story. Sometimes they'll be right there next to each other. Sometimes, like with the red heifer, it's going to be in Numbers and the Beast and Revelation. They could be opposite ends of the Bible. But usually those are big stories. 
But when you come to things that are very close together, they're smaller stories. But they're everywhere in the scriptures. And it's like God will not give light without the pattern of the menorah. Let's go back to the creation story for a minute. God made two great lights, didn't he? One to rule the day and one to rule the night. The sun and the moon. This forms a menorah. So there's light he provides in the day, and there's light he provides at night. But these two lights are very different, because the sun is constant. Yeah, clouds might get in the way, but every single day, the same sun always rises, gives its light. And we may say, well, there's just no sun today. Yeah, there is, just some clouds in between. But the other one is always changing because of its nature. It waxes and wanes. It's, sometimes it's completely dark. Other day, nights it's full. It's always changing. It has nothing to do with earthly events, with clouds. It's a celestial event that changes its amount of light. But they're both exactly the same in that, and this is, we take it for granted, but astronomers don't. If you could somehow look up at the sun and measure the exact diameter from where you see it, and then measure a full moon, the diameters are identical. That shouldn't be. You know, usually a moon will appear much larger than the sun or much smaller than the sun, but for them to look exactly identical, that's planned. That's by design. And that's why when there's a solar eclipse, the moon exactly covers the sun. It's not bigger or smaller. It's exactly the same size. If we were a little closer to the sun, or if our moon was a little further, that would all be thrown out. But God designed it so they're exactly the same size. But the amount of light they give is completely different. Who do the sun and the moon represent? These two sides of the menorah. Yeshua and, and the bride, us. Because the moon gets its light from where? The sun. And many times the sun is is used as an image for Messiah. It talks about how the sun of righteousness will arise with healing in his corners and his wings. But we're the moon. We change a lot. We have our good times and we have our bad days, you know. And being the bride, you know, the moon goes through this cycle of like 29 days, just like a woman's body goes through a 29-day cycle. How does that happen? It's because the same God who made the moon and the sun and the celestial bodies is the one who created the human being. And so as the bride in our history over the last couple thousand years, there are times we've shined brightly and other times we gave no light at all. And there are some times we blocked out the light of the sun. There are times in the history of Christendom that are very ugly and very dark. And other times it's been awesome. And individually, we have some days where we really shine and other days where we don't so much, but don't beat yourself up. That's kind of ordained. You kind of get a rest. It's a time for you just to be still and not noticed. And other times for you to be noticed. But the moon is always changing like we are. It goes through cycles. The sun is constant, constantly constant. All right? The more you think about these, the more lessons God will teach through these pictures. Um, you can compare the first Shavuot there in Exodus when God 
gave his Torah at Mount Sinai and the Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And um, most of you know this, but in the Talmud, it tells us that when God spoke from Mount Sinai, you had this great mixed multitude at the bottom of the mountain, it says all those people there heard God speak in their own language. Now, that's not in the scriptures, but it's in the Talmud. But by knowing that, what happened in Acts chapter 2 makes more sense. Because God's renewing the covenant. When he established the covenant the first time, there was fire on the mountain. When he, when he reestablished it in Acts 2, there's fire on the apostles' heads. Everybody heard God speak in their own language there. Everybody here has got to speak in their own language here. And... Um, so there should be similarities. And the same day of the year, Pentecost, the day they celebrate the giving of the Torah. So pretty incredible. So com- compare those two days. All right, you ready for some homework? Yes, Grant, we want homework. I'm wondering how many of you did your homework. You were kind of quiet earlier when I was asking. You, give some, you did your homework, didn't you? Okay, I see two people, oh, three, four people nodding their heads. All right, good. This one will, if you haven't been impressed by any of these other menorah patterns that we see in the scriptures, this one will. Because it's like God screaming off the page, saying, look at this, this is not an accident. I want to compare Jairus' daughter with the woman with the issue of blood. The two stories are found right together. In fact, the story of the woman with the issue of blood is found in the middle of the story of Jairus' daughter. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue, and he, he's called uh, someone, he asked Yeshua to come and heal his daughter. On the way, Yeshua meets this woman with the issue of blood, heals her, and then he goes on and finally gets to the house and the little girl's dead. And if you don't think these two stories are connected, even though, like I said, the, the way it's written, it's screaming at us. Look at these two stories. Get this, how old was the little girl? Anybody remember? Twelve years old. How long had the woman had the issue of blood? Twelve years. It's like God saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. That means when the little girl was born, this woman developed a real problem. And then the woman's healing, the little girl's death, took place at the same time. But the little girl's raised back to life. You've got to figure out, here's the, here's the thing, you'll find all these parallels differences and similarities. One takes place outside, one takes place inside, one's in the crowd, one's alone, one, you know, one's an old woman, one's a little girl. You'll find all these differences and similarities. But then the big question is, all right, so what? What's God trying to tell us? By superimposing one story inside of the other. What is he trying to get across? And you're going to have to really think And you can go look up in books and commentaries all you want. I promise they're not going to help you. Don't waste your time. Nobody's going to talk about it. It's up to you to figure out. All right? And I expect some good answers next week. Analyze Psalm 67. Psalm 67 is called the Menorah Psalm. It has seven verses. But have a menorah in mind as you study this short little psalm. And if you have a Hebrew Bible, it makes no difference if you can read Hebrew or not. That will help you, because you can count the number of words and letters in each verse. All right? Psalm 67, amazing psalm. Just absolutely amazing. 
Then if you have time, now this is a bigger project. This is one you might want to take a few weeks on, but we're going to have a few weeks between now and our next session. Take the seven kingdom parables in Matthew 13. The seven kingdom parables. You know, the sower and the seed, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, and all these. He just tells parable after parable after parable. And he explains the first two, but he just keeps telling these parables, seven and all. And then compare them with the seven letters that Yeshua dictates to the seven communities in Asia Minor in Matthew or in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And you're going to find an exact correspondence between the seven parables and the seven letters. Because these kingdom parables, I'll give you a little heads up, describe what is called the church age, the 2,000 years that we're in now. It describes the seven periods of this last 2,000 years. I believe we're in the last one. And the seven letters to Revelation also describe the same seven periods of these last 2,000 years. And there's going to be an exact correspondence between the parables and the letters. Now, it's going to require more reading, more going back and forth, but it's a very, very rich study. And I think you'll be blessed by it. Okay? I want you to get to the place where Every time you open the scriptures and you look about at anything, you start asking yourself, where's the menorah? Where's the other half? I want you to see menorahs everywhere. I want it to haunt your brains. Because then you'll be unlocking the secret of how the scriptures are to be engaged. Everything in the Bible is presented on the motif of the menorah. It's God's pattern for giving light to us. All right? Any questions or comments? You've been so quiet. Yes, Loyla. Yes, he's a master of this. Yes. Yes. Um, it's called uh, chiastic. Is that what you said? Chiastic. Yes. Well, they both do. Yeah, both both are correct. Yes. So, mm-hmm. um, does that exist in, in these in this homework and in the mm-hmm. things you've been talking about? Not only are they they're parallels, but there's also a yes, yes, always. And yeah, da- Rabbi David Foreman, really a great teacher. He does the um, Aleph Beta uh, program on on the, the internet. Wonderful, wonderful teachings. He's not a Messianic rabbi, which is sad because he doesn't then access the New Testament scriptures. And so he misses things like the four well stories. He only has three of them. We have the fourth one that makes the menorah complete. And if only, you know, someday uh, we pray to to God, he'll come to recognize Messiah and begin to embrace all the scriptures. I mean, just stand back. His, His brain's going to explode. But he's an incredible teacher, brings out amazing insights, and he really is a master at discovering chiastic structures, or what I call the menorah pattern. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Anybody else? Any last-minute comments or questions? Yes, David. Oh, the seven menorahs, seven candlesticks. He's in the middle of, yeah. And some people say that uh, where Yeshua is in the midst of them. A long time ago, I used to think that uh, the center candle would be like Yeshua, the Messiah, and the rest of the spirits around him. And later, I started thinking about it as being each one of the Yeah. It's almost like having seven men up there yeah. and the Spirit of God in each one of them. And it's sometimes the way that you look at something, mm -hmm. just like we're looking at the, uh, the different places in the Bible that uh, show this pattern, you can sometimes see it being shown differently by in one place. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Symmetry added, you know, mm -hmm. in the one uh, Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, uh, as you read in the letters, he refers back to those candlesticks, or what we know as menorahs in the first chapter. And sometimes he talks about how I'll remove your menorah, your candle, I'll remove your candlestick from its place. So it almost seems, since there are seven of these in chapter one, and then there are seven letters to seven different communities, it's like each community is like a menorah. Now, how is each community, how is Beth Takun like a menorah, whatever community you're part of, how is it like a menorah? Well, I think the key is back in Romans chapter 12. If you want to turn back there, I've got exactly six minutes on my clock, so let's use them up. I want you to get your money's worth. So what I'm going to do is go to a different program where I can just draw, and here we go. Okay, and we'll get a new page. In chapter 12, I always love talking about this. It's pretty amazing to me. Um, we'll start with verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Messiah, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. And then he lists seven gifts. Now you'll find another list of gifts in Ephesians and another list in 1 Corinthians. But there are three distinct different lists. We are not to combine them all together. They serve three different functions. And this is the one that's usually entitled the motivational gifts. These motivational gifts, the best way to describe them is this. Each one of us is one of these. It earmarks what drives us and how we work and how we process information. And Yeshua had all seven in perfect balance. But each of us is one of these, and we have the other six to some small degree. Some people I meet will have two of these in spades, and then the other five in some small degree. 
but I've never met a Yeshua has all seven in perfect balance. So, in the menorah, you've got seven arms, and I have to assume the menorahs in the book of Revelation that David's citing had seven arms, like the tabernacle menorah. Well, menorah could have any number. We're going to assume there are seven, and we have seven gifts here, and these are also listed in a menorah pattern. So, let's take a look at what they are. Let's let me just number them here, and I need to get a smaller pen. Uh, yeah, there we go. Okay. So, here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Is that showing up okay? Can you see that all right? Okay. Number one, it says prophecy. Now, I want you to skip down to number seven. Number seven is at the end of verse 8, and that is mercy. You see mercy? Prophecy and mercy will draw our menorah sideways. Some people have, they're the prophet people. It doesn't mean they foretell the future or even really hear from God, and it doesn't make a difference whether they're a believer or a non-believer. Your soul is a prophet soul. In other words, everything is black or white. There's no gray in your life. Everything is horrible, rotten, or everything is wonderful. That is terrible. This is great. You can't see gray. And you can't help it. It's the way you are. All right? There's no gray. Prophet people really condemn sin. They hate seeing things are done wrong. But the moment a person repents, they're your best friend. They'll love you and embrace you. Ah, welcome back to the, <laughs> welcome back to the, the, the light, you know? So, and some people are wired that way. They're very opinionated people. But they're valuable. Because they're the people you can go to and you want to know what's wrong in your life? They'll tell you. They'll tell you. And they can see what's wrong in your life. They can't see what's wrong in their own life, but they can see what's wrong in yours. On the other end, we have the mercy people. These people have no black and white in their lives. Everything's gray. They're not at all kind of hard like the prophet person. They're very soft. And when someone is in pain, this person feels that pain. He, they feel it. Their hearts go out. And because women are more emotionally and spiritually in tune with things, you'll find this more among women, though I've seen it plenty of times among men. And what happens with these, their problem is, is they're easily manipulated emotionally because they're mercy people. Oh! <gasps> My heart's breaking for you. Oh, what can I do? And they're just manipulated and can get used. Many times a girl, a beautiful young believer, will, will, will meet some uh, motorcycle gang member, and her heart goes out to him. I think I can help him. And they marry the guy. And they have a miserable life. But they were manipulated because they're mercy people. Mercy people need to develop more of the prophet. Outlook and the prophet people need to learn to soften up a bit. They balance each other out. Now let's go to number two. Number two, it says in verse seven, if service and is serving, and these are the servants, these are the muscle in the body of Messiah. You have more servants than anything else because you need more than anything else. 
These are people, they don't know how to say no. You ask them to do something, will you help with the kids' program? Sure. You help set up chairs? Sure. You help slice bagels? Sure. You have a work day? Sure, I'll be there. I mean, they just, they love to serve. And they're good at it. Their problem is they don't know how to say no. And they get burned out. And so people in positions of leadership in a community need to be very protective of the, the people who have this servant's heart and say, listen, I want you to take a break. You've been doing too much. Take it easy. Sit this one out. But what's number six? Number six is in the middle of verse eight, and that is the leader, or you might say the administrator. This is not the person who does the work. They're the ones who envision the work, plan the work, organize the work, make sure it gets done. Their problem is they are so focused on the goal, they'll grind up people in the gears and never look back. And sometimes administrators are not sensitive to the individuals because they're so goal-oriented. We've got to get this done. You've got to get this building built. You've got to get this program in place. You've got to get new air conditioning in the church building, whatever it is. And they'll just, they'll make, they'll make it happen. But I've met a few administrators in my life who really are gifted and sensitive to the servants, the ones who do the work. And uh, so the administrator needs to learn more about the servant's heart and get down and get dirty sometimes. And the servants need to understand how the work is organized and realize sometimes administrators aren't really sensitive and sometimes I need to say no. Then what are numbers three and five? Number three is the teacher. Teachers like to talk. They like to study. They like to bore people with, with details and trivia. Uh, but they love to give. They love to learn and love to give it. And over here is the giver. Number five is right there uh, partway into verse eight, and that is the giver. This is the person who gives financially. The person who's the giver has such a generous heart, they always have more to give. God just blesses them with more. They keep giving money away, resources away, and God keeps piling more in their lives. But they sometimes aren't that interested in studying. Eh, you study. You go to the Bible study. I, I'm you know, just not interested. The teacher loves to give information. The giver loves to give physical resources. But the teacher needs to be learned to be generous in other ways. The giver needs to learn to study. They're both givers, but sometimes they're oh, so invested in what they're giving, they forget the other side. The teacher often forgets the practical. Ask Robin. I am so, so often miss the practical things, but, but my wife brings balance to me. She's the other half of my menorah. So, teacher and giver. And what's smack in the middle here? The encourager. The encourager. You don't have many encouragers in a body. You don't need many. You just need one. If you have two, you're doubly blessed. The encourager is that person, like Robin's Uncle Mike, I always think of him, who just passed away last Wednesday, 93 years old. And whenever he, we'd be doing whatever, working, uh, whatever it was, when Mike walked through the door, the whole tone of the room rose. It was an intangible, but you could feel it. Everybody's a little bit happier. Everybody enjoyed the work more. And he would just pitch in. He had such a servant's heart. But his presence there was always just 
I don't know. It was just the presence was, it was amazing. They're like a little bee that, that spreads the pollen around. Um, the problem with an encourager, though, they're very rarely depressed. But when they get down, they are way down, and there's no getting them back up. You just got to wait. It's a very rare thing, but boy, they're tough to get back on their feet when they do get discouraged. And um, so if you have these seven kinds of people, and I think pretty much every community does, you've got your menorah. That's your menorah there. And the encourager in the middle is always just kind of helping the other six, just their influence. Because they're always thanking people. They're so appreciative and grateful for what everyone does. They're, they're aware of everybody, and they really love everybody and appreciate them, and everybody senses that. So, you see a menorah there? They're everywhere. Menorahs are everywhere through the Bible. You can't avoid them. So, uh, so at least open your eyes and see them now. All right? Oh, I've gone five minutes over. I feel good. All right. <laughs> Are there any last-minute questions, comments? We'll, I won't keep you any longer. But if there's some burning question or something you want to share. All right, we're done? All right, let's close in prayer and I'll dismiss you. Father, thank you so much for this time together. And Lord, you're our Father and you are our King. What a beautiful menorah that makes. So we are not afraid to come to you because we know that you love us as you love a tender child. But Father, on the other hand, we fear you because you're our king. You're our lawgiver. You're our judge. And we should not be um, just sloppy uh, about how we approach you. So Father, help us to know you both as our father and as our king. To know your tenderness and love but to know you in your royalty and in your power. And Father, I pray you'll bless these who have come out tonight in this cold night. Bless them, Father, and I pray their hearts would be encouraged, that they would be excited to look into your word, and I pray you'd open their eyes to see menorahs everywhere and to derive spiritual light from them. So bless them, Father, richly in their studies, And I pray you'll bring us safely back together next time as we continue this. We praise you for it all in Yeshua's name. Amen.